You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. We're the fortunate ones to A, live here in Maine, or B, be able to have the platform to write about it, and C, have the kind of relationship that lets us do it together. Yeah, and D, keep each other busy, too, because I think otherwise we'd go crazy if we didn't have a lot to do. It's a great family sport, it's a life sport, and really the coolest thing is the connections that you make. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Sea Bags, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter, Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 116, Ski Families, airing for the first time on Sunday, December 1st, 2013. Today's guests include Josh and John Christie, who are outdoor riders and longtime Sugarloaf skiers, and also Cooper Friend, another longtime Sugarloaf skier who has enjoyed the Sugarloaf ski scene with many members of his family. Is your family ready to hit the slopes? As we head into winter, many of us are preparing to enjoy one of our state's favorite seasonal activities. Today's guests are admitted snow lovers and longtime ski aficionados. Why does skiing and main ski areas such as Sugarloaf engender such loyalty? Listen in to our conversations with Cooper Friend and Josh and John Christie to find out more. Perhaps you will find yourself planning your own family excursion to the slopes this year. Thank you for joining us. Anyone who's lived in Maine for a period of time recognizes Sugarloaf as being a major ski attraction, um, and not only just for the state of Maine, but also really for the rest of the country. So we're privileged to have with us today Josh and John Christie, who are a, I guess it's a son and father team, Josh being the son, John being the father, who are columnists for the Maine Sunday Telegram, writers, and in fact, John is a Sugarloaf historian, having written the book, The Story of Sugarloaf. Josh is also an outdoor writer and has written the book Maine Beer, Brewing in Vacation Land, which I guess is technically not an outdoor book, but well, in some ways, in yeah. some ways, it's it's all you about can do it outdoors. yeah, yes, yeah, right. You could you could drink beer outdoors, <laughs> so it's really all about enjoying yourself in this great state of Maine. And uh, we appreciate your coming in and talking to us today. Well, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, Lisa, thank you. We really appreciate the chance. It's a good chance for Josh and me to get together. We don't have that much opportunity <laughs> until ski season starts, which for him started three weeks ago at yeah, Sandy River. Yeah, four and days now so far. I'll be skiing on the 22nd, Friday, for my first day, but Josh has gotten ahead of me so far, but that won't maintain because I have this goal, I don't know if we had chatted about it ever before, of uh, and have had now for the last several years of skiing my age, so... Uh, that means I have to ski at least 77 days this winter, which will be no problem at all. Yeah. All right. Did you do it last year? Have you been able to meet that goal? I skied 82 goal? last year, okay. and I'm not even going to take credit for that extra six days that I skied, which I probably 
technically could, but I won't. So we'll get in 77 days at least. And Josh, obviously you've you've managed to ski your own age pretty easily, yeah, I yeah. think. Yeah, it's pretty handy. It's, you know, I'm not a retiree, so I don't have quite the, the time in my calendar to ski the dad does, but I try and get a lot of days in. Yeah, I'm sort of, sort of a retiree. I work uh, 26 weeks a year for the Maine Department of Conservation as a ranger in Camden Hill State Park. But... Uh, uh, that gives me a and Marty, my wife, Josh's mother, is a uh, works in a school in little village school in Appleton, the Appleton Village School. So she's working. In fact, someone stopped by the park to see me uh, two or three weeks ago before the season ended and said, "We thought you were retired." And I said, "Well, uh, I am, but I'm I'm still a go-getter. My wife works, and I go get her. <laughs> so that's sort of where I am now. But it gives me a chance to get in plenty of skiing. Well, you're a, you are a busy family. I mean, I I, I know that um, this writing that you do for the Maine Sunday Telegram, it's not just about skiing. You actually are writing about being outdoors year-round, and you you have a book coming out very soon. Exactly. In fact, that um, uh, our the writing that Josh and I do together all started, uh, this will be the fourth winter that mm-hmm. we uh, are doing the Skiing in Maine column for the Sunday Telegram, which also runs in the Kennebec Journal and the Waterville Sentinel on Thursdays, I believe, of each week. But that resulted really from an interesting friendship and contact with Deirdre Fleming, who's an outdoor writer at the Portland Papers. And uh, she had come to Sugarloaf to do something, and we had met. And... Uh, uh, she had been tasked with helping Joe Grant, the sports editor, find a ski columnist, and so it seemed obvious that Josh would be an appropriate one to do that. And so uh, that began to uh, bubble up as the prospective ski column for the winter four winters ago. And then Joe Grant said, "Well, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if we got the old man so we could do this kind of?" Two, I don't know if he two, said old two, man. <laughs> yeah, his father. <laughs> so we did that, and. Um, then, uh, come spring, um, I was meeting with Joe, and he said, well, now ski season's over. What do you do the rest of the year? And I said, well, you know, ski season's a piece of cake. Winter's a piece of cake. I don't have to make any decisions. I just go skiing. But in the summer, I said, let me tell you, it's uh, tough because I don't know if I'm going to hike or bike or camp or kayak or fly fish or canoe. He said, you do all that stuff? And I said, oh, we, we do all that and more, and then that led to a, something I'd been thinking about for a long time, and that is that there are all these outdoor treasures that Maine people don't seem to appreciate. They don't, and as an example, I said, like, we used to camp when the boys were young down on the Skudik Peninsula, and I mentioned Skudik to Maine people who ought to know where Skudik is, and they said, where's that? Oh, we've never been there. And as part of that, I said, I'm reminded, growing up in Camden, I was down on the town landing one day, and there was a great old sage, local sage, Peanut Alley was down there, and he knew all the secret fishing holes and everything. And he, he said to me, and it resonated with me, and I've never forgotten, he said, you know, John, it's amazing how many people spend their lives in Maine and never really live here. So I said, you know, I think... Uh, we were just kind of chatting about that, and then Joe said something about how, what did you think about writing about that under the heading of it's worth the trip? 
which was a phrase, I guess, in our conversation I had used. And I said, well, you know, and Josh does all kinds of stuff in the summer, too. <laughs> and people like his writing. In fact, one day last spring at Sugarloaf, I was up at Bullwinkles, and people beckoned me over to, the, to their table, and they said, uh, John, uh, we've got to tell you, we... Uh, we really love those ski columns that you and your son write, and said, you must be very proud. He does write quite a lot better than you do. <laughs> so, you're, you're, I am, and you're right. <laughs> so we started that three summers ago, and then uh, uh, with my friends, at, or our friends at Down East Books, who published my Sugarloaf book, um, uh, conceived of the idea of perhaps assembling all of those columns and other outdoor things that we've written into a book. And now, it, in fact, I'm meeting at Down East this afternoon on tidying up some loose ends. But that book will come out in May, and it will be called The Maine Outdoor Adventure Guide. I had been lobbying to have the book called Maine Summers Done Right. That may end up as a subtitle. I'll know this afternoon. It's af- now public. I'll yeah. know this afternoon. <laughs> well, Josh, what is it like to have such an active father and to have such a close relationship with your father. My, my father is also a doctor, so we share this sort of father-daughter-doctor thing. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of an interest, that's always been a very interesting thing for me. What is it like to be, um, both of you be writers, both of you be outdoors people? It's incredible. It You know, it was odd growing up. It's not necessarily what you would expect because generationally, um, we're we're split by about two generations rather than one. I'm in my mid twenties, and Dad's in his. I'm usually thought already, of right? as yeah, his yeah, grandfather. Yeah. So, so um, <laughs> but you know, I didn't ever really feel that way growing up because he was always so active, and it just he was able to instill a great love of the outdoors in me and my brother. I should say that, as he mentioned, my mom Marty, she's also loves the outdoors and is a great hiker. And we grew up in a little town called Washington, which is in the mid-coast. And it was perfect because you're about half an hour from the coast, you're half an hour from the capital, hour and a half or so from Portland and from Bangor, two hours or so from Sunday River, Saddleback, Sugarloaf, Squaw. Uh, So everything is all right here. And as we've said in our columns for the last couple of years, really worth the trip and the benefit of a... What's the term? Not aged, but seasoned, right? A seasoned <laughs> father was, he knew where all these places were. So he was able to introduce uh, not just Jake and I, but also our friends to all these places growing up. Well, and it, uh, you know, on the other side of the coin is that uh, I was just so blessed that when I was about 50 to have, that we had these twin sons born. And it gave me a, a whole new life uh, of uh, being able to share the outdoors and Maine and everything that there is and to be really reintroduced to alpine skiing which I had pretty much uh, uh, retired from after I'd been I'd been in the business for a long time and uh, I had owned Saddleback in the 70s and that had been a a, a difficult uh, experience emotionally and more importantly financially and I connected the business and the sport together, and somehow in my mind, uh, skiing seemed to have been a bad idea. <laughs> and so I stopped alpine skiing, and but stayed uh, cross-country skiing uh, from our farm in Washington. The local snowmobile club had a trail that went from right by the farm across two ponds and about a seven-mile loop, so I cross-country skied all the time. But 
hadn't thought much about alpine skiing, but then when the boys were young, we're only 15 minutes from the Camden Snow Bowl, and, which is where I learned to ski. So and sort where of I learned full to ski. circle and took them back and uh, took them over and then said, gee, this, this looks like fun. Maybe I'll try this again. And then it, I just started doing it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a strong sense of history that runs throughout your books. The, the Sugarloaf book, obviously, is the story of Sugarloaf. So there's a strong sense of history, and we'll talk about that. But also, Josh, I'm, I'm looking at your book, Maine Beer, Brewing in Vacation Land. And you actually talk about the temperance movement mm-hmm. and prohibition and General Neil Dow, who was a mayor of Portland and architect, architect of the prohibitionary Maine law known as the Napoleon of Temperance. So it must be very interesting for you to be, each of you, traveling around the state and not only see what's in front of you today, but also have a sense for what has come in the past. Yeah, and Maine is incredible in terms of the Maine estate historic sites. I think of the forts like Fort Knox or the fort at Pemaquid, which are these wonderful places that are open to the public and not just provide hiking and kayaking and stuff you can do outdoors, but this great sense of this long history, the centuries-long history we have in Maine. And the the even the really recent history, I mean, when I was reading about the story of Sugarloaf, this actually, it's not a very old mountain. No, that's right. And as a, uh, you know, as a major resort, it was really in the, it was, uh, uh, there was a local group up there that uh, uh, hacked a trail out on the mountain after having to abandon Bigelow, which is where the first trail was up there, uh, because uh, Central Maine Power and its wisdom dammed up the Dead River and created Flagstaff Lake, and uh, they couldn't get to the trail that they had cut, which was an old trail that led up to the Appalachian Trail. Um, And in fact, uh, just this past Columbus Day, Josh's brother Jake and I and Deirdre Fleming from the Portland Papers hiked to to the summit of Bigelow, which has become another one of my traditions. In fact, now this was uh, year number 30 consecutive Columbus Days that I've climbed Bigelow. But gives us a chance, gave me a chance to show Deirdre kind of where the old original trail went. But then they went over, cut a trail on Sugarloaf, put in a little rope tow in 1951, and then in uh, uh, the early 50s, uh, uh, built, uh, uh, put in a couple of T-bars, and then uh, in 1961, which is when I got there, added three more T-bars. Then Sugarloaf sort of became what it began to become what it is now with the construction of the gondola, which was built in 1965. So that's not that long ago, although, um, interestingly, I was just uh, doing a little research. Uh, There are only two ski areas, operating ski areas in Maine now that predate the Second World War. One of them is now called Shawnee Peak, which I still have to refer to as Pleasant Mountain (laughs) because that was when I was at Bowdoin, that's where we skied. And the other was the Camden Snow Bowl which is, has become another, always was, but even more of a great love of mine. Uh, uh, and in a couple of weeks in the Sunday Telegram, one will read about the $6.5 million redevelopment project going on there as a result of uh, the townspeople in November uh, uh, voting affirmatively for the town to raise $2 million, triggered by the fact that we have raised $4.5 million in private funds in Camden. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. Bright blue skies, 
Fresh snow, family, friends, and the mountains. There's not much I don't like about skiing. Of course there are times when the wait to get on the lift does require patience. And during those longer waits, it can feel like an eternity until you're on the chair, anticipating your next exhilarating run. The same can be said for investments. It takes patience to get to a place where you feel good about where things are going. And yes, there are times when the feeling of exhilaration is short-lived because just like skiing, you go up and then you go down. Market fluctuations are facts of life, but how you're equipped to handle them is based solely on how well you handle the emotional side of your financial life. To understand that when you have a healthy relationship with your money, the ups and downs are easier to take and in a lot of ways can be enjoyable because of a refreshed perspective. To learn more, go to www.shepherdfinancialmain.com or like us on Facebook. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. is the story of ski areas in Maine in general, at least initially. Um, in the Sugarloaf story, it, it, there was a time when people were being handed out at the same time they were getting their ski passes, they were being handed out potential shares in the company. Mm-hmm. That, that's how Sugarloaf, uh, really, it was uh, those original uh, uh, $1,000 shares that one could buy in the Sugarloaf Mountain Corporation is what built uh, that and modest retained earnings, uh, built the first two T-bars and uh, got the access road built and bought a couple of snowcats. And yeah, that, uh, it's very much grassroots. But you know, in Maine, I mean, there were once 80 ski areas in Maine, all rope tow ski areas, as, and as I say, and that was all before the Second World War, none of which for a variety of reasons liability insurance being perhaps the most significant one, um, just stopped operating. But I mean, there were two, ski, three ski areas in Augusta, two in Belfast. I mean, it's an interesting history, and uh, it was fun doing the Sugarloaf book to kind of, because I was there, and not the earliest of times, but knew the, all the early players, and to talk with them, and then uh, uh, also... Uh, uh, I've been president uh, of the Ski Museum of Maine, and this year was our 10th annual Maine Ski Hall of Fame induction ceremony in October. And that's uh, allowed me to uh, understand more the whole fabric of Maine skiing and a lot of the early 20th century Nordic skiers, especially from 
not only just Rumford and Andover, which is kind of the hotbed, but in a rustic county where it was, I mean, they used to run a, a cross-country ski race from Fort Kent to Bangor, if one can imagine. That is a, that's <laughs> a very long race. Well, there's a fellow I'm assuming who won that it was multiple three, days. Three years in a row, yeah. They, it, they went 24 hours. It was... Uh, and took more than 24 hours, I, I think. But, uh, yeah, it's, it was a great. And that's, that really derives from the Scandinavian uh, population that uh, really populated New Sweden and a lot of Aroostook County. Josh, tell me about growing up um, near the Camden Snow Bowl and having that be your primary mountain and knowing that that was your father's primary mountain before you. It was... You know, it's one of the great things about the Camden Snowball is one of the same things that my father and I both love about Sugarloaf is that it has a single base area that all the trails dump down to. So you can feel free to leave kids there for the day and you know they'll be safe. You know they'll end up in the right place. And it's a lovely mountain anyway. It's the only mountain uh, on the East Coast that you can see the Atlantic while you're skiing, uh, which is a beautiful view. But there's something about these community mountains which, as much as I love Sugarloaf and Saddleback and Sunday River in these places. That's lost as mountains get bigger. This community, right down to the fact that the food is all cooked there on a big grill down in the base lodge, which you don't see at the larger mountains. It feels very friendly and welcoming. And it's you know, worth mentioning both when I was a kid and, and now either through school programs or through a program like uh, Winter Kids, that it's an affordable way for people to start skiing. And that is hugely important. Um, I've been very lucky in that I've had some connections through my father being in the industry that I've been able to ski some. And then being in the ski industries program at the University of Maine in Farmington and interning for the Ski Maine Association. Now writing for the paper, I have a little bit of access either as industry or press. But I try, especially when I'm writing, never to forget the fact that it's not a sport. It's a sport that can be very unaffordable. And, and it's important to, to get started early, I think, to get that bug in you. So it's a important line item on your budget every year that you want to be able to go skiing. This is something that you also experienced, John. You um, came from a family where I believe your father wasn't really present, and so your mother was largely raising you. Is that so? Absolutely. Yeah, he was not present because he died when he was 29 years old. And so my mother... Uh, raised my brother who was four years old I say was four years old he passed away back in the 90s but uh, she raised the two of us as a single mother uh, um, in Camden and Camden was uh, by a a strange set of circumstances I'm proud to be a Mainer I was born in Presque Isle but not because we lived in Presque Isle Uh, we lived in uh, uh, Bethesda Maryland the family did but uh, my grandfather was a radiologist. In fact, and this was in the early part of the century, I mean, he was missing parts of two fingers from Burns. New William Rentgen. Now, Burns, because of being a radiologist yes. back then when the exactly. x-rays yeah. were very strong. But he was, uh, uh, and in fact, was... Uh, 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 the president of the American Medical Association in the late 30s. And I remember hearing him at the family's, his summer outdoor compound up on Portage Lake, which is uh, up in Aroostook, where he and his doctor friends would all come for fishing. He was a great uh, fisherman. 
of hearing him rail against this demon uh, Franklin Roosevelt that uh, was going to socialize men, and I can I can still hear that. In fact, we the camping that the boys and Marty and I did so much of uh, when they were young. Um, we coming back from a trip up to Fundy National Park. Uh, we stopped at Campobello, which has become a special love of ours, and we were after the second time that we'd been camping up there at Herring Cove Provincial Park, somebody asked me what I thought of the Roosevelt Cottage there in the Roosevelt Campobello International Park, and I said, well, I, I got to tell you, I, I, I was afraid that if I went in there, my grandfather Christie would roll over in his grave. So it wasn't until our third trip that we finally <laughs> went there. Well, there's too much to do outdoors on Campobello. Yeah, that, exactly. But we, uh, it just happened that uh, driving up to, uh, to Portage Lake one spring, uh, my f- it was a three-day drive from the first day from Washington, D.C. to Newburgh, New York, then across the Mohawk Trail to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, the third day was right up Route 1, all the way to Portage. But driving up the coast and driving through Camden, my father just remarked casually that, boy, that looked like a would be a great town in which to retire. Then, as I say, he tragically died at age 29, and my wife, my mother, rather, I think, being remembering that, uh, packed up my brother and me, and he was, uh, I was three and he was seven, and moved us to Camden. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. When the snow flies, my family, like so many others in Maine, smile and think skiing and riding. While it can be an expensive sport, it's something we look forward to and plan for each year. The last thing you need is for this kind of expense to cause a burden or disappointment because it's not in the budget. It's funny how many times I have to remind myself and my clients to budget and plan for expenses in advance so that when they hit, you can just enjoy the ride. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. Boothmain.com. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, sea bags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Seabags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind, nautical-inspired pieces. Please visit the Seabags store in Portland or Freeport or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. Josh, you you were up at University of Maine at Farmington, mm-hmm. so your educational path was maybe a little bit more straightforward. Almost, well, I went almost the opposite route because inspired by my father, knowing as a high school student all of the kind of glory stories of skiing and none of the 
Arab oil embargo and the financial collapse and losing money in the ski business. Um, I went to the University of Maine in Farmington chiefly to go into the ski industries program, the sadly now defunct ski industries program, um, and to ski at Sugarloaf. So I, I was fairly certain I was going to be in the ski industry. And then, again, got kind of an education, a deeper understanding of myself and thought, I can probably just write about it and continue to enjoy the sport without the financial investment that would be involved with being at a mountain. But to go back to the idea of family involvement, Farmington was great because you would go through Farmington coming from Portland, where my brother went to school. You would go through Farmington on the way up to Sugarloaf. And coming from the Midcoast, where dad and mom lived, he would come through Farmington on the way to Sugarloaf. So... Or early 2000s is when gas prices really started to rise and we were able to carpool most of the way going up from the resort, from the, the campus there. When Josh went up to college there, he, he asked me about what I thought about him getting into the ski business. And I said, well, yeah, it was uh, it's delightful just to run somebody else's ski area. You know? <laughs> Don't buy one. Don't build one. Don't buy one. I think it's also worth noting, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but you went to Bowdoin not because your family had a lot of money to send you to Bowdoin. You got kind of like our former Senator George Mitchell. You were sort of discovered in a way. You got a very nice scholarship, and you were, I don't know, unable to go to Bowdoin. You, um, there was some good fortune there I that love occurred. the story. Yeah, mm. the greatest paperboy in the state of Maine, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, we had no money at uh, my mother was a school, our, his grandmother, my mother was a school teacher, um, uh, raising two boys all alone there in Camden. And uh, But I delivered the, the, the first, the main Sunday telegram when my brother had the, the daily route for the Press Herald. And then he gave to me his daily route uh, uh, when he stopped delivering papers. And I did that all through junior high school and high school. And then back then, the Gannett uh, Publishing Company and the family uh, uh, every year had one principal scholarship they gave to one news, then not politically correct, one newsboy, they called them then. <laughs> uh, that, uh, so I got that. And um, that really was what, uh, uh, that was enough to get me uh, uh, into Bowdoin and underwrite my freshman year. And then, um, and I think this is also part of why I realized after having spent two winters in graduate school in Stockholm that I really didn't like that kind of cloistered environment, that uh, there was an entrepreneurial side to me. And uh, a good friend of mine, Gene Waters, who's down here in Portland, classmate of mine, we, uh, we got the uh, hot dog concession at the, the Whittier Field, the football stadium, and so... We had that, and just by fortuitously in my sophomore year, there was a new hockey rink built, so we got the hot dog concession at the hockey rink. And then there was, I don't know if they had Gordon Linen service back in your day, delivering sheets around to everybody. Gene and I had the Gordon Linen concession as well. In fact, my senior year, I made money. It made more money at Bowdoin than it cost me to go there. Well, and this is why I'm so fascinated because, of course, I I went to Bowdoin, but I wasn't trying to sell hot dogs or deliver linens. I think I was a lifeguard at the pool, so I did do something on campus. And I and I think for a little while I lived with my family to save some money, but it certainly wasn't what you've described. Or in the show that we did with um, former Senator George Mitchell, I think he 
was working um, in sort of construction or in a gravel with in a, out of a gravel pit. I mean, it's you really had to work very hard for your education in a similar way that you had to work to, in order to ski. You had to decide that this was a priority and you were going to move forward with it. It uh, and mine, um, you know, it was really through the kindness of strangers that I. Uh, uh, that uh, scholarship that I had uh, from Gannett got me started, and then there was a, I don't know if the Charles Irwin Trevelli Fund existed when you were in school, but that I got that scholarship, and then uh, uh, there was a scholarship that um, was, um, uh, one had to be a Portland resident to get it, and um, the old, the board chairman of Maine National Bank at the time was responsible for that particular scholarship. He was friendly with friends of ours in Camden that were Bowdoin people. Because of my mother's uh, accident, I had no real legal home address. And uh, there was uh, two semesters that uh, my address uh, for the purposes of that scholarship was the Portland YMCA. (laughs) But that... You know, that was all just through people who took an interest and thought, well, this kid deserves a chance. So all of this seems to kind of come through as, um, I guess, an acknowledgement that life is not always that easy, but it's always possible to enjoy it, which is something that you both write about um, with the Main Sunday Telegram column that you do and also with this upcoming book that you have. What are some of your favorite outdoor places here in Maine that people can very easily get to and really enjoy. Josh has some great ones. Yeah, perhaps my favorite, which is a bit of a drive from Portland, but still an easy trip, is Tumble Down Mountain in Weld, uh, which is this beautiful alpine lake that's surrounded by three peaks that are all reachable by hiking trails uh, just off from the Mount Blue State Park. Um, but since it is, um, I think the Tumble Down Land Trust or something to that effect owns the land, so it's free to access. Um, very easy to get to, um, well-described in Carrie Kish's um, version of the Appalachian Mountain Guide, which is out now. Um, and then a lot of the ski areas actually have great hiking during the summer. Pleasant Mountain, uh, Shawnee Peak is, is a great hike as well. And I have a great affection for Wolf's Neck State Park, which is right near my home in Yarmouth. Um, it's just a great little network of trails. It's easy to get to, um, fairly inexpensive to access. It's a couple bucks to get into the state park there and just beautiful. And the, uh, uh, I, I did a recent column, uh, fairly recently about, uh, uh pa- kayaking on the Harris Seacat, uh, um, which I had, I tend to do more in Penobscot Bay and further east and down east and out around Bar Harbor and there or out around, the. Uh, uh, the, the islands in Penobscot Bay, but uh, you know that that paddle uh, from uh, the South Freeport for, from the Freeport Town Landing there at high tide anyway is a great place to go down around Wolf's Neck. In fact, I in my column uh, I remarked that uh, uh, this business of skiing my age. I was riding a chairlift one day last winter with someone I was telling them that's what I do and he said well you know he was a sailor and whom I've known for quite a few years and he said well you know us old old sailors we our goal is to always have a boat that's the length of our age so I remarked in my column as I paddled down by South Freeport there that it looked like there were a lot of 
old sailors in Salisburyport because there were a lot of 60- and 70-foot boats moored there. But uh, another great hike um, is Borstone Audubon Preserve, uh, east of, uh, of Monson, which is just a, that's a, a, a beautiful hike. And, uh, um, you know, I... I mentioned uh, the islands of Penobscot Bay. I think just the, uh, um, you know, the the main ferry service with its ferries to Vinyl Haven, North Haven, Islesboro, Swans Island, and even Matinicus. Uh, you know, great trips to just, uh, and there they are, just off the coast. And I remember my freshman year at Bowdoin, my roommate, Charlie Graham, was from Marblehead, and his parents were coming up for homecoming, and said, they're going to be around Maine for a few days. Can you think of some things for them to do? And I said, well, let me think about that. He said, well, they've been talking about maybe going out to Vinyl Haven. Uh, You grew up in Camden. What's Vinyl Haven like? And I said, Christ, I have no idea. (laughs) Why would I ever go out to Vinyl Haven? (laughs) Growing up, I said, now, full circle, Vinyl Haven's one of my favorite places in the world. Uh, we had a lobster boat for years moored in Rockport Harbor, and uh, uh, Marty and I, before the boys were born, did a tremendous amount of gunking around every nook and cranny of uh, about every place from Pemaquid to Bar Harbor in that lobster boat. And uh, there's just, uh, and the whole, the portage uh, uh, and the Debully uh, Preserve, which is one of Maine's public land preserves. North of Portage, up very near the Allagash and the Canadian border, that's uh, spectacular as well. Fortunately, uh, people who want to learn more have lots of different ways to do this. They can read your book about the outdoors, whatever it ends up being titled when it comes out in May. (laughs) They can also read, John, your book, The Story of Sugarloaf. Or they could read your book, Josh, Main Beer, Brewing in Vacation Land, which I guess you can drink outdoors. So technically it's an outdoor thing. To be enjoyed outdoors. I like it. (laughs) And then people in general can read about Sugarloaf in the December 2013 issue of Maine Magazine, which is indeed the Sugarloaf issue. Uh, We're fortunate to have people who are out in the world doing what you're doing and writing about it, so those of us who aren't able to quite get to as many places are inspired to go find those places. Um, We've been speaking with John and Josh Christie, father and son, outdoor writer, life-loving team. Um, We appreciate your coming in and talking to us today. We're we're the fortunate ones to live here in Maine, uh, be be able to, to have the platform to write about it and see have the kind of relationship that lets us do it together. Yeah, and D, keep each other busy too, because I think e- otherwise we'd go crazy if we didn't have a lot to do. As you can tell from our resumes. <laughs> well, you are doing great work, and you have a great relationship. I can tell that. So, congratulations to you both, and s- stay close. Thank, Thank you. Lisa. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter-inspired landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. One of the elemental forces I've been working with a lot lately is fire. And fire is warm, brilliant, decisive, lucid, innovative, quick, burning changeable, adventurous, creative, 
joyful, intuitive. These characteristics are human characteristics, and they're spoken about in the five elements that I work with a lot in my landscaping. We are entering a time of great change on this planet, and I think fire is symbolic of that change. I think we are all sort of in a certain sense are getting fire in our belly, and we're, we're trying to figure out where we're going. Fire moves us into the etheric. We actually, what's left after fire is, is ash and, and the invisible world. We move, and, and I think that we have to start to think about that's where we're all headed, but are we headed there too fast? Are we moving through life too quickly? Are we not taking time to pause and to really see and engage in the world around us, in the landscape around us, in the trees and the birds and the butterflies? We're so busy with our cell phones. We're so busy with our day-to-day lives, with our phone calls, with everything, texting, mm. this and that. It's just too much. I think that what we have to think about is balance between wood and fire. Wood feeds fire, and it's a high, quick burn rate. But we have to also be careful with fire because fire in the landscape is dynamic, it's fun, it's joyful, it's playful, but it also needs to be balanced with, another, with the other energies as well. I'm Ted Carter, and if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast understands the importance of the health of the body, mind, and spirit. Here to talk about the health of the body is Travis Bullier of Premier Sports, a division of Black Bear Medical. Black Bear Medical knows the toll skiing can take on a person's body, especially since we aren't able to enjoy it year-round. Stop by our locations in Portland and Bangor and check out our full line of compression socks for skiing and other winter sports. They provide cushion and support as well as increased blood flow to keep your muscles loose and help avoid soreness. We also invite you to check out our braces and supports for any of those recurring injuries or to prevent you from putting a damper to your fun-filled weekends on the mountain. Our full line of rejuvenation products will also help you stay loose and flexible for those sharp turns on those tough trails. You can find these and many of our other sports health products at blackbearmedical.com. Black Bear Medical. It's your life. Define it your way. It's always my pleasure to spend time with people from different parts of the state who are doing slightly different things but have something in common with me. Um, Because, of course, I think we're all interested in people who have something in common with ourselves. This individual sitting across the microphone from me is somebody who really enjoys skiing, as I do. And we thought it would be a nice thing to bring him in and talk about skiing and how it being a skier at Sugarloaf with his family, in fact, his parents and now his children and his grandchildren, has really brought joy and happiness into his life and the lives of those he cares about. So we're talking to Cooper Friend, and uh, we're really glad you're here today. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Now, Cooper, you, we were talking, and your house was actually featured in Maine Home and Design last year. And they talked about the fact that your family has been coming there since, I believe it was the 50s? Correct. And originally, your parents built a house up there. Yes. My, uh, my dad started skiing at Sugarloaf in the mid-50s uh, through his good friend uh, that lived in Newport, King Cummings, who was one of the founders of Sugarloaf. And King convinced my dad that uh, he needed to go to Sugarloaf, so my dad would trudge up to Sugarloaf from Newport on snowy days and 
And then uh, King built a camp at Sugarloaf, and uh, my mom and dad and I and my sister would stay with the Cummings uh, in their camp. And uh, after several weekends of that, uh, my mom said to my dad, we need to build our own camp. Uh, this is pretty nice up here, and everybody seems to enjoy it, so we need to have our own place. So my dad, um, in the summer of 1959, built a camp. And this camp, was it a year-round camp that they were able to, you were able to use in the summertime as well, or mostly just winter? We, the, it was predominantly used in the winter, but we did go up in summer and had some work bees around, and we'd re-shingle. I remember one summer we had to re-shingle the roof and, and just do some work bees around there, but we did but we did go up some summer, but not a lot. So what are some of the memories you have growing up from, um, from this camp and from spending time skiing with your family at Sugarloaf? Oh, gee, I remember every Friday afternoon loading up our station wagon with, you know, five-gallon jugs of water because we didn't have any running water. And um, driving up Friday night and getting there when it was dark and cold and building a fire and getting it warmed up and waking up and then going to bed when it was cold and waking up at like midnight or one and you were roasting hot and <laughs> going outside to go to the bathroom and, and uh, but it was just so many families did that uh, we weren't unique everybody did it and, and uh, it was great and when we would stay up there Christmas vacation week and February vacation week my dad was friends with the people that owned the Sugarloaf Inn and we'd go up like midweek and take a shower <laughs> So, so this was common that people didn't have uh, running water and they had didn't have indoor toilets and very common, very common, yeah. And that didn't seem. I mean, by then you're talking about 1959 and 60s, and it yeah. didn't seem that unusual to you. No, even um, even in through the, the early mid 60s. And how did the Sugarloaf Inn feel about everybody descending upon them to take a shower? Well, I, I you know I was pretty young, so I don't really remember. Uh, I, my dad was real good friends. With, with that family that owned it. And um, so I just thought that was what high we got. But I'm sure there are other families that, that did the same thing. But uh, it, was, it was a great experience. It was, and, of course, you know, skiing, we've just met so many wonderful people through, through there, through Sugarloaf. It's, it's been great. Were your parents skiers before they decided to start um, going up to Sugarloaf? Yes. My mother was a little bit of a skier. My dad was a, was, was a very avid skier. He had skied and he had skied in in high school and 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 in college. So, was he also originally from Maine? I know you grew up in Newport. Yes, he was born and born and born and brought up right in Newport, Maine. So, skiing back in the fifties and sixties, it wasn't quite what it has become now. It wasn't quite as expensive, quite as fancy. The equipment was definitely very different. What are some of the differences you see between then and now? Well, obviously the equipment is so much better now, and the snow is so much better with grooming equipment. The, the, the grooming is the biggest, the by far the biggest change, and and, and the, the artificial snow. Now you can make snow when, when there's no natural snow. But the grooming and the snowmaking are the two huge differences. So were you back then using the skis with... Um Sort of the boots that weren't exactly ski boots, and the the leather straps, and the, you were using were you using those kinds of things. Yeah, they were ski boots. They were leather ski boots, but yeah, they had the big leather strap that that, that uh, went around the boot for the 
for the safety binding. So if the if you came out of your binding, the ski, ski still stayed with you, but uh, and wouldn't go down the hill. But yeah. Well, these are the kinds of skis, because I was on the ski team in high school, and these are the kinds of skis we would see when we would go to a ski shop as, like, the antique skis that were put up on the walls. Mm -hmm. And we would always wonder, well, how could people ski in those without getting hurt? But it sounds like you could just, if that's what you had, that's what you worked with. Yeah, and then in the 60s, they kind of went to metal skis, and, you know, it was was all relative. They were making big advantages. It all seemed like state-of-the-art stuff back then, so... Did you ski with your parents and your sister, or did you ski with other friends when you were up there? Uh, I skied with my dad, uh, and but I skied with, with friends most of the time that were my age. And some of those people are still there today. And you still have relationships with them? Absolutely, yeah. Yes. So we go from you living with your parents and your sister, getting a little bit older yourself, um, going to Nassau in um, Springvale. This is the college that doesn't exist anymore. That's correct. <laughs> but um, moving to Ellsworth, mm-hmm. opening up your own um, motorcycle dealership? Yes, in Ellsworth. In yes. Ellsworth. Yeah. Getting married, having some children yourself, mm-hmm. and deciding somehow that um, the Sugarloaf thing, you got to keep doing it. Yeah, I actually, I had gotten out of the sport a little bit through, through, um, through high school and college years. Uh, there was probably 18 years that I probably had only skied, oh, eight or ten times. Um, and then actually, my wife, who was from Cincinnati, Ohio, um, back in 1986, her sister called her and said, I just went to Sunday River, and they had a learn-to-ski free day, and we just had a blast. You've got to come do this. So my wife met her at Sunday River, and she came back from that day, just really pumped and enthused and said, we've got to do this for the kids. And I said, hey, you don't, you're preaching the choir. I'd love to get back into skiing. And um, so we had some, the first winter we rented a place at Squaw because I, I was a little budget conscious and we wanted to just make sure everyone was going to enjoy it. Well, at the same time, we had a real good friends of ours with children that were the same age as ours were renting a place at Sugarloaf and they asked us up for New Year's. And once we went back to Sugarloaf, that was it. I mean, we, I just, it was great. And the next season, we, we, we started renting at Sugarloaf. And then we purchased a place in 1993. So. Being a Sugarloaf family is a commitment. It's something that, I mean, you've already described it from um, your childhood, where you kind of pack up on Friday and you're gone for a weekend away from your friends at home, mm. and then you're back again on Monday. But it, it's a commitment, and it's many, many months at a time. Mm. How does it, that feel? Oh, it sure is a commitment. I mean, um, it's uh, when, you know, when, when either if you find a rental or you purchase a condominium or a home up there, you know, you, you feel you need to, you want to be there as much as possible. And our children uh, went to CVA, went to Carabasa Valley Academy, the Ski Academy, and which is a great school, and it was very good for both of them. And um, and my wife lived there in the winter time um, to to be with the kids, and and um, I would go up on the weekends. And do you feel like it contributed to your family staying pretty close? Oh yes, yeah, absolutely. What happened when your kids got to be? And I'm assuming because they went to CVA when they got to be better skiers than you. Did you still ski with them? 
Well, you know, when they get to that age, skiing with their with their mom and dad is not not a whole lot of fun because yeah, they were definitely <laughs> way better than us. What do you think it is about Sugarloaf that um, engenders such loyalty? It seems like people are Sugarloafers and they're Sugarloafers for life. You know, it's um, Sugarloaf definitely, it gets deep in your soul. There's something about it. It, it. it has a very unique history with a lot of colorful characters. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still a small community and um, of really nice people. And you have that common denominator of the passion for skiing. And um, it just draws, that draws everybody pretty close. And uh, it does, it gets deep in your soul. And it's just, it's where you want to be when you're not there. You came into our studio today wearing a shirt from your dealership. It's friend and friend. And I, and I love that the motto is the boys with the toys. Mm-hmm. There must be something, some understanding that you have, that you hold um, that play is important and that enjoying one's life is important. Otherwise, I doubt very much you'd be selling the toys to the boys, i.e. motorcycles, or spending much as much time as you do skiing. Well, yes, I, you know, I'm born and raised in Maine, and I, I think that Maine people work hard and they like to play hard. And, and uh, I just I, I feel that uh, there has to be a time for recreation and, and uh, we try to provide one of those niches, one of those alternatives to the, for that recreation as motorcycling or off-road riding. And clearly this has become very popular and something that other people have recognized the value of because now you've, you've grown significantly. Yeah, the motorcycling has become very popular the last 15 or 20 years. It's really, really become popular. And you have dealerships in other parts of the state and also out of state, is that right? Yes. Um, the one in uh, Ellsworth and one in Orono, and then a Harley-Davidson store in Lewiston and a Harley-Davidson store in New Rochelle, New York, right outside New York City. Is there something similar um, between the feeling of freedom that you experience going down a slope and the feeling that you experience being on a motorcycle? There, there, there. It is very similar. Yes, it's just the the wind in your face and the scenery around you, and it is definitely comparisons. And do you think that this helps you stay a little closer to the world around you? Oh, sure, sure, absolutely. You have two kids yourself. Yes. And now I believe you said you have two grandchildren. Is that right? Two, two boys, two grand, two grand boys. Yes, ages uh, three and a half and just turning one. And your kids skied, obviously, growing up themselves. Yes. And now you've got this three-year-old who sounds like he's about ready to get on skis, maybe? He got on skis last year. He was in several ski lessons, and he and I rode the chairlift together, and it's, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. And what was his response to going out there as a little one? He was very eager. He wanted to. I mean, he just—you've got to understand that his dad, not only was his mom a skier, but his dad was a tremendous skier. Uh, my daughter and— my son-in-law, Kyle, met at Bates College. They were both on the ski team, a Division One ski team. And, and Kyle was three-time All-American. And, and uh, so he has a very strong passion for skiing. And uh, it's probably a pretty safe bet the two kids will, too. It, it, was, it was funny because uh, we had pre- we'd been in a condominium since 1993. And in 2004, after our kids had graduated from college. Our son was still in, in his last year or two of college, but basically the nest was empty. 
And, you know, we, we had talked about getting a standalone home. And um, so we found this home that, that we fell in love with. And um, it's big. And everybody said, why, are you, why aren't you downsizing? Why are you getting this big house? And I said, because it's going to, I really think and hope it's going to be the crazy glue for the family. Because Sugarloaf, it's, I feel it's gotten in their soul too, as well as it did, you know, my wife and mine. And uh, it will always draw them here. And that's exactly how it's played out. It must be pretty great to be the grandfather riding the chairlift with the grandson. Oh, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say to people who are thinking about um, making this investment of time and money and energy to become sugar loafers themselves? I definitely feel if there's any way in their budget that they could do it, to do it, because it's it's a great family sport. It's a life sport. And um, really the coolest thing is the connections that you make. I mean... When my daughter got married in 2005, just I, I remember standing there and looking out at everybody, and there was just so many skiers there, you know, so. Well, it is a tremendous resource for Maine, so I feel like we're very lucky to, to have Sugarloaf right, right up the road, two, not very far. No, two great skiers, really, and, and a lot of small, nice smaller ones, too. But Sunday River and Sugarloaf, it, you know, they're two jewels, for yeah. sure. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, we don't want to overlook, besides even Sunday River and Sugarloaf. No. I mean, we've there's been sort yeah, of Shawnee a Peak Shawnee and, Peak, yeah, and yeah. I think Squaw was yeah, opening yeah. back up again yep, last Squaw, year. Yeah, Squaw, Boy, you're on the top of Squaw and overlooking there. It's one of the most beautiful views in Maine, looking over Mount Kineo and Moosehead Lake. It's spectacular. So it sounds like even if people are not quite ready to make the Sugarloaf investment, there are yeah. multiple opportunities to become skiers. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's a great sport. Well, Cooper, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today about the Sugarloaf experience, and I'm so glad that you're able to um, come in and actually make the drive down from Ellsworth. We've been speaking with Cooper Friend, who is a longtime Sugarloafer and also owner of Friend and Friend, the boys with the toys. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 116, Ski Families. Our guests have included Josh and John Christie, and also Cooper Friend. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctrlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and Pinterest, and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Sea Bags, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter, Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. 
Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belisle. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Our online producer is Katie Kelleher. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belisle on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org.